Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Hanan Parvizian. He's the co-founder and CEO of Valency. Hanan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what you guys are doing at Valency is actually very innovative and cool, but maybe before we get into all that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was born in Esfahan, Iran. I oh, um, went to primary school actually in, in the UK in London, uh, went back to middle school in Iran and uh, last years of high school and university in uh, Munich, Germany. Oh, cool. And uh, then uh, moved to the US, uh, worked in the consulting industry with the federal customers and commercial customers ultimately moved out to the Bay Area, got hired by Tesla, and um, the rest is history. Very cool. So let's step back for a second. You went to university. What did you take and why? Um, I studied mechanical engineering um, at the Technical University of Munich, um, background being that uh, uh, I wanted to study a, a discipline that uh, would allow me to do a range of things after school and engineering uh, made a lot of sense uh, because you can you can become a really good engineer. You could go and apply your engineering skills or analytical skills to business um, uh, and or you could you know start a company. So engineering in that sense made a lot of uh, uh, sense to me as a discipline to take to have the foundations and the basic skills that you would need in a business career uh, or in a future career in general. And um, uh, mechanical engineering um, specifically, uh, I was uh, influenced by my dad, who is also a professor in mechanical engineering. And so that was Very cool. part of the background there. Okay, so you get hired on at Tesla. Walk us through your journey up until founding the company. Yeah, so, um, I was hired by Tesla to uh, do operations analysis. So what that means is um, I was looking at different data sets uh, from across the company, uh, service, sales, manufacturing, and trying to figure out where we can gain operational efficiencies or where we're inefficient and how we can improve that. And um, one of, and, and that was across different uh, aspects, whether it was customer satisfaction, whether it was manufacturing, whether it was service or sales. And one of the last projects I worked on at Tesla uh, before I was about to leave to actually go to, to business school um, was to look at logistics and getting supplies and parts out to service centers and delays that we had on the manufacturing and assembly line. And one day as I was uh, taking BART, uh, which is the local uh, uh, train here in the Bay Area to Fremont from San Francisco, I um, uh, stumbled on the idea of uh, using drones or unmanned aerial vehicles to enable faster shipments of these parts and supplies that uh, we needed to ship out at Tesla uh, in order to save downtime costs and, and help with customer satisfaction. And 
Um, I am not a drone expert or I didn't know anything about drones other than what was uh, what I would just read for the news. So I started hanging out at uh, Stanford uh, at their UAV club or unmanned aerial vehicle club and started to uh, meet with different engineers uh, and understand really what the uh, limitations of the industry and the technology were. And, uh, and that's where uh, first Stanford I met with my co-founder Wesley and uh, that's where we ultimately hired our first engineer from that uh, Stanford UAV club. And uh, based on that understanding, um, decided to start a company uh, and start developing the technology that would uh, make it viable for us to service enterprise customers like Tesla. Interesting. Okay, so what made you decide to actually start the company and, and how did you guys start it? Did you, did you self-fund? Did you raise some money? Walk us through that. Yeah, so the, the reason uh, we decided to start the company is that um, based on what I had seen at Tesla and some of the, the market analysis that we had done, we, we realized this is a big problem that's not just limited to Tesla. Getting spare parts and uh, urgent supplies out uh, for any uh, ongoing sustained operations, whether it's manufacturing or whether it's mining or whether it's any type of operations, if you don't have the supplies and parts that you need, and if your machines are down or if your operations is down, that costs you a lot of money. And it was kind of neglected because I'm not sure everyone, including ourselves, was familiar with how big this, this problem is in, in the enterprise space. And the way typically it was solved was uh, either you were a really uh, large company like an Intel and you had jets on a runway waiting to ship parts when needed. Or if you're a middle-sized enterprise you, or smaller one, you would use a combination of express shipments um, and uh, the fastest method would be either someone hand carrying your part in a truck, or if it's a longer distance, you would use a service called Next Flight Out. So basically you would have someone come to your, to your warehouse or to your site, pick up a part, take it to the nearest airport, put it in the next commercial flight, to another airport, then have another truck pick it up there and then take it to the final destination. And all of this stuff takes a lot of time and there's a lot of money lost and was also these shipments are not cheap. So there's a lot of money spent on them too. And this seemed very inefficient to us and uh, drone technology uh, made a lot of sense. That being said, we realized that we had to develop certain components of the technology and flesh them out even more to make it viable for businesses and for this application. And so after doing about six months of market studies and research, we kind of narrowed it down to three main technology components that were required to make this business viable. The first one being vertical takeoff and landing or VTOL to eliminate the need for infrastructure. Basically, we can go to uh, our customers and say, I need to build a runway in your backyard to you know, provide the service Fair to enough. you. Um, second was autonomy, uh, because again, we couldn't have a, a fleet of uh, hundreds of thousands of pilots uh, operating these vehicles, because again, that there's a limit on, on that side. And uh, the third one was uh, uh, combining different propulsion systems to be able to carry uh, different payloads and go over longer ranges. And then um, that that was kind of where we, uh, based on that, realized, okay, what technology components were needed and came up with our first concepts uh, of the vehicle. And our uh, first couple of months, uh, even into the first year, we were self-funded. 
I basically show, uh, sold uh, any equity or shares I had uh, at Tesla and uh, funded the company for that for a while. And then ultimately we got into accelerator programs like uh, uh, Alchemist uh, Combinator and uh, uh, funded a company for that. Very cool. Um, okay, so walk us through getting the actual first version kind of prototype done and then let's dive a little bit deeper into the different verticals that uh Valancey actually plays in because i think that's the thing that i found the, the most interesting about what you guys are doing is you guys do some really cool stuff in a bunch of different verticals Absolutely, yeah. So the the first proof of concept delivery mission that we did with our first MVP, if you will, was back in 2017. Once we launched out of uh, Y Combinator, and that was for a customer in the high tech industry, uh, specifically in the semiconductor business, where again the downtime cost is extremely high if if one of the semiconductor fabs is is down. And we delivered a, a spare part uh, out of uh, one of their warehouses uh, over a hundred uh, miles in a, in a round trip mission, uh, demonstrating that the technology was viable and, and we could deliver parts and supplies over a very long distance. Um, and that was here in the US and uh, near Austin, Texas. And, and that was a record breaking mission in itself because uh, not only did we transport a, a part for an enterprise customer and prove the use case for ourselves, but also from a regulatory perspective, uh, we had uh, demonstrated a very long flight uh, within the boundaries of what uh, FAA allowed at that time. And so from that proof of concept, we got a lot of interest and traction from other customers, both in the high-tech industry, but also customers in other verticals like mining, oil and gas, and, and ultimately customers in the medical industry. And in 2018, we started working with um, Merck, who's been a longtime customer and partners of us, uh, partners, partner of ours, um, in delivering cold chain supplies such as vaccines and, and other medical supplies. First, intended to use for primarily disaster relief efforts, uh, and uh, ultimately now we're using it re uh, recurrently um, in the site that we have in Wilson, North Carolina. And um, uh, we also then got interest from customers in the, in the federal industry or in the government space that needed to deliver critical supplies and parts, especially in this case, they were interested in medical supply deliveries from uh, shore to ship and, and uh, vice versa uh, to, to, sell, to, to help save a soldier's life uh, on, on a battleship or on a right. ship in general. And uh, we started working with uh, with military customers, uh, specifically the U.S. Navy. Uh, and uh, since then, we've grown the business to uh, continue to really focus on uh, on those applications and those customer verticals. Uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, we're excited to see uh, how we can grow this business and help different customers with different uh, use cases and applications over time. Very cool. So just for some perspective, yeah. How easy or sorry, how much time does it save a company from, you know, putting something on a, a traditional aircraft or private jet to get something to somewhere or, or driving something like how much faster is it by using one of your drones and, and kind of what you guys are doing compared to the traditional methods? Yeah, I think it's it's not only just a 
how much faster is the one vehicle versus the other. It's actually how 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 different is the entire supply chain end to end. Okay. Um, so, for example, if you currently want to ship something from say San Francisco to LA, which is a uh, about a four hundred mile trip, uh, okay, um, and where you could argue you have a flight between San Francisco and LA probably every 10 minutes or 15 minutes from either San Francisco airport or Oakland or San Jose, one of the airports here in the Bay area. Okay. So it's a very frequent route and you could also drive it in, in four to five hours if you wanted to. Um, now in an enterprise use case, if you place an order right now at 11, 18 AM Pacific time, which we're at uh, on a Wednesday, um, the soonest option they will give you is probably nine hours away from now, even if that's possible for them to deliver it today. Most likely tomorrow, first thing in the morning is the best option you will get. If you go with a next flight out option, like with a UPS or a FedEx or one of the other uh, third party logistics providers. So in that context, if a drone is flying uh, or one of our vehicles is flying, say, you know, 60 miles per hour, which is not fast, uh, still you're getting it there sooner uh, than uh, your best options that you currently have on the market. And the reason is uh, because we can take off and land literally from, from your doorstep, from, from the top of your warehouse or in your parking garage and land on the other side. We don't have kind of a multimodal logistics or combining of different legs of shipments just to get something there. And the vehicle is available at your disposal, at, at, at your disposal on demand. Um, you're, you're seeing at least a five to six X uh, improvement even on a very uh, um, high traffic route like San Francisco to LA. Now, with most of our customers, we're not talking about delivering stuff from San Francisco to LA. We're, we're normally delivering uh, to customers in industrial areas or in rural areas where you don't have this type of infrastructure and you don't have this type of traffic. So the improvements there are even more significant. Uh, and for example, uh, we, we do operations in Western Africa and deliver uh, supplies and parts for customers in the mining industry. And given the road conditions there and the lack of infrastructure, a simple trip uh, that uh, they need two and a half hours to drive a truck from one point to the other, uh, we can fly in less than 30 minutes. So there's a 6x uh, improvement just on one leg of the trip. And on a, on a round trip basis, uh, you're, you're getting... Uh, sorry, a five or six X improvement on one leg of the trip on a round trip basis, you're getting a 10 X improvement. So that's where I see the power of this technology is that um, you don't need infrastructure. You can take off on demand, you can land on demand and you can go point to point. And, and that's really a game changer and disruptor for this uh, supply chain industry. No, it's, it's very cool. And so for P I, I get it's tricky when it's audio only to the, to explain how it flies, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it kind of like it lifts up like a drone and then kind of flies like an airplane or how does that work? Yeah, it kind of lifts like a helicopter. So vertical uh, takeoff and vertical okay. landing, and then it flies like a normal airplane fixed wing. Uh, so it's a combination of the best of both technologies. Uh, because if you, if you just fly uh, on a multi-copter basis, uh, like a helicopter, if you will, uh, all the time, then you require a lot of energy and um, you can't cover long distance. So once you're talking about cruising, the, the most optimal means of flying is to have a fixed wing uh, structure, basically like wings. 
and and that's why you combine a uh, regularly uh, uh, shaped aircraft or winged aircraft with a multi-copter structure on top of it and that way you get the best of both worlds so you can take off a land wherever you need to and then you can be very optimized for cruise flight uh, and um, so the way we take off just to kind of describe it is we um, uh, take off uh, from a flat surface any surface there's no infrastructure required and then um, starting at about 150 feet to 250 feet, we start transitioning to forward flight. So that means a, a pusher uh, motor or pusher engine kicks in and starts propelling the aircraft in, uh, through the air like a normal uh, fixed wing aircraft. And at some point, the multi-copter shuts off and then it's just flying and cruising like a normal plane. Once it reaches its destination, the multi-copter uh, starts to uh, spin up again. Uh, slows down the aircraft uh, because you're turning off the, the pusher uh, motor or engine and then it lands again vertically on the spot. So you're kind of combining two modes of flight, vertical flight and then um, normal uh, fixed wing cruise flight. Very cool. And then how does it work from a fuel perspective? Is it, uh, do you put gas in the thing? Do you, is it, do you just charge it up or, or walk us through that? Yeah, so the vertical system is electric powered, so it's powered by batteries, okay. um, uh, like lithium polymer batteries or other types of batteries that you could use. Um, and then the cruise flight is could be powered by batteries, so it could be electric or could be uh, powered by a, a gas uh, um, uh, gas powered engine or a diesel powered engine or other type of um, uh, engine, if you will. So. Uh, there's also the combination that we have on our electric 10 series where the cruise flight is powered by an electric motor. Uh, so both of those are possible. And um, the difference is that you have what we call a separate lift thrust design. So your vertical system is independent of your forward flight system. And that allows for redundancy. And also that allows you to design a better um, combination of uh, vertical uh, left shift system and a forward uh, pusher system. Got you. And then what's the rough range? It probably depends on which combination I pick, but do you want to give us kind of a range of these things? Yeah. So our smallest uh, platform, and when I say small, uh, it's it's about 55 pounds uh, gross takeoff weight, has about a uh, nine-foot wingspan. Um, it's our 10 series, which has a 10-pound payload capacity. In an electric mode, it has about a 50-mile range. And then it goes up from there. So our larger platforms and also our hybrid versions of the 10 series and other vehicles have uh, payloads and ranges starting at 10 pounds and 50 miles going all the way up to a uh, thousand miles. Or uh, in this case, right now we have our 20 series in the market, which is a 20 pound payload aircraft. Got you. Okay. And then is there, can I watch the thing fly or does, does it plot it on a map or or how do I know where it's at or whether it's reached its destination or not? Yeah, that's a good question. So the flight, as I mentioned earlier, is autonomous. So autonomy okay. one of, is one of our key uh, enablers. Um, but that being said, you can definitely monitor the flight uh, as long as you maintain communications with the vehicle, which we do over different um, uh, command and control links or communication links. Um, so they, it could be... You could be connected to the vehicle over radio. You could be connected to the vehicle over 
cellular network or over satellite network, depending on where in the world you're at and what kind of communications infrastructure you have. Uh, but if you're not connected to the vehicle, it will still fly, it will still do its mission. Uh, it's really the connection is there for you to be able to monitor the mission and intervene if you needed to. Got you. Okay. And so when you say intervene, is, is that sometimes like related to weather conditions or, or what does that mean? Yeah, it could be a combination of things. It could be that you're flying through an area where you need to change course. Maybe you're flying next to an airport or maybe you're flying next to a road or maybe uh, some uh, a safety event happens and you need to take over the aircraft. So basically, you want to have communication with the vehicle in case those interventions are required. Um, and part of it is also that you want to, um, you know, part of it is driven by regulations and safety requirements. So again, the vehicle could do a lot of these things autonomously by itself, but it's good to have a human in the loop to help with that uh, and, and also help with the safety case. Got you. No, that, that makes sense. So do you have to pick certain flight paths based on regulations or is it kind of just like get there the quickest way, safest way possible? Uh, no, you certainly have to work with the regulators to make sure that um, you pick a safe route. So the way we kind of think about designing our flight routes and our business model is to really fly fixed delivery routes for enterprise customers. Um, and the way we think about it is to do a lot of preemptive risk mitigation. So what I mean by that is we survey the route, make sure we know of all the obstacles, and um, not always are you getting the best data from maps and, and um, uh, data that you have publicly available. Um, so you have to do your own surveys, understand the obstacles, navigate through different airspace challenges that you might have. For example, if you're flying for a uh, congested airspace or near a, an international airport or near a, a highway or a city or whatever it is, those are things that we uh, preemptively mitigate by designing a route that's very safe. And uh, we run that by regulators and, and get their blessing on that. And then we start flying that route back and forth. Got you. So do you have to like tell any airports around that I'm going to be flying this medication or this vaccine here and there? Or like how much communication do you have to have with other flying airplanes and aircraft? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, depending on where you're at, yes, you do. So in some cases, we do fly near airports. So we call into air traffic control, let them know that we're flying and give them a heads up. In some cases, the vehicle has a transponder on board. So it's 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 squawking its position so okay. that um, other vehicles or other aircraft in the area know where we're at and uh, of our surroundings. Um, and in some cases where there's, there's really no air traffic out there, you, you may be able to not communicate with anyone, but for safety reasons, we always both communicate with uh, the nearest airports, if there are any, and also with um, uh, nearby um, aviators. Got you. So I know you've given a few really good, useful examples, but is there any other examples of how companies or people have used your technology? Yeah, so again, it's really about, um, in, the where the customer sees the, the the need and the return on investment for this type of technology. So we we're a company that's really focused on solving our customers' problems and not necessarily dogmatic about the technology. So the 
we try to design our technologies to really primarily serve the customer. And the use cases that we just talked about and you know, I'll highlight again is on the, on the medical side, it's about delivering life-saving supplies either to someone who needs a medication or vaccine urgently or to someone who's stranded uh, after a disaster and needs relief. Um, on the enterprise side, it's really about saving on downtime costs and making sure that you can uh, maintain uptime as much as possible in, in any sort of ongoing operations, whether you're an automotive manufacturing assembly line, whether you're a mining site, whether you're an oil and gas platform, whether you're a semiconductor fab. And, and on, the, on the government side, it's a combination of, again, delivering uh, critical supplies or life-saving supplies to maybe a soldier in the field. And, and the benefit of that is, especially in a contested environment, uh, you can, because you're doing this using unmanned vehicles, you're not putting other soldiers' lives in harm's way. So right. that's, that's kind of life-saving two ways. Um, and you're using vehicles that compared to other um, manned uh, vehicles that are currently used are very uh, inexpensive and very uh, easy to use because they're autonomous and, uh, and um, very safe. Sure. So walk us through the vision of the company and how do you come up with new products or, or new weights that you need to support or, or new new vehicles? Is it mostly customer driven or are you guys doing some internal research or a bit of both? Yeah. So the the vision that we have at Balanci is, uh, you know, that the world around us is designed based on the limitations of technologies that, that we've developed. And uh, so what we mean by that is the fact that we have to uh, build so many uh, roads and tunnels and highways and bridges and all this ground infrastructure is that at mass we're really limited to ground transportation solutions and that's what we talked about right enterprise customers or uh, even consumers and um, our mission is to uh, transform the world around the, the technologies that we're developing namely VTOL and autonomy or vertical takeoff and landing and autonomy and as a result, democratize access to uh, vertical aerial transportation and mobility. And, and the key word for us here is really access. So we want to enable access for people uh, with a means, uh, with our technology that, that allows them to get supplies, parts, um, and, and get from one point to the other uh, using this technology uh, that, that would otherwise not be available to them. Um, and how, so how we think about the product roadmap is that we want to start with the uh, lowest hanging fruit, if you will. So serve the okay. customers that have the highest purchasing power, that have the highest need and have the highest adoption rate. And then over time, work our ways uh, towards other customer segments and other verticals and, and ultimately uh, enable applications such as mobility. Uh, that means that you could you know, transport passengers from one point to the other. Uh, but, but we're taking a very pragmatic approach. Uh, to getting there. Got you. Okay. Interesting. So when you say passengers, like, I guess like, what does that really mean down the road? Like, would you transport me to like an appointment or something, or is it like kind of like an Uber type thing or, or walk us through that? Yeah, I think it's really, uh, the, you know, the vision that we share is that 20 years from now, the way you think about transportation ecosystems in general is going to be very, very different. So um, ground-based transportation is going to be for really um, uh, 
cargo or supplies or anything that has a high frequency, has a very high payload and is very predictable and, and is just going on a fixed route. So for example, imagine you're, you're transporting cement from uh, Tracy, California here to, to, to the Bay Area or to San Francisco. Okay. So then in that case, it would make sense to you know, build a railway or a hyperloop or have autonomous trucks going back and forth. Um, but for any type of transportation where you have a level of customization, where it's more in, infrequent or less predictable and where you have variable payloads, for example, you know, uh, people commuting to work or you going to your dentist appointment, as you said, or anything of that nature, uh, aerial transportation is going to become more and more commonplace. And especially uh, with the advent of VTOL technology, which means that the limitations on infrastructure are lifted, and autonomy, which means that limitations on uh, you know, accessibility for different people are lifted, you're going to see that become more and more frequent. And whether it's Uber-like or not, that's really based on the business model. I think it's going to be really a service that people use. I don't think people will be owning their own aerial vehicles uh, right. necessarily, but that's more of a business model question. But from a technology perspective, uh, I think it's going to be a future where you have a lot of air traffic uh, for um, customized, uh, you know, less frequent uh, kind of trips and legs, and you will have a lot of ground traffic for more predictable, uh, less customized uh, type of goods and, and uh, applications. Sure. No, that makes sense. And I think like if you've read any kind of news over the last few years, there's a bunch of companies working on like package delivery through a, some sort of drone like Amazon and or like even food delivery where they just kind of drop it off at your house, right? And it kind of goes away. And I could see that in the future. And it would make sense if, um, you know, it could transport just like me to an appointment or something. I think that's actually really cool. And I agree with you. I think majority of people probably won't own one, but what, what is the rough range of owning something like this personally? Is it more affordable? Obviously it's more probably affordable at this point for a company, but as costs come down, like, do you think it'll be affordable at some point for somebody in the general public? Absolutely. I think, um, the question, as I said, is from a business model perspective, is not necessarily whether it's going to be affordable or not for you to own it. It's going to be a question of whether it's necessary or not for you to own it. So if this okay. becomes ubiquitous and you can have access to a, an aerial lift, if you will, anywhere, anytime, then there's really no point of owning a vehicle that does that. But sure, okay. um, yeah, I, I, that, that's kind of, I think, the trend you also see in the uh, autonomous uh, ground vehicle space, right? So the question is, do you really need to own a car in the future, or are you always going to be able to be shuttled from one point to the other uh, if you have access to these fleets of vehicles providing the service to you? So I think the similar argument exists there. Uh, but personally, I don't think you know autonomous ground vehicles are going to be necessarily the game changer for us. It's going to be autonomous aerial vehicles, and, uh, and that, that's it. That's what the future that I'm excited about. Interesting. So I'm curious, obviously you guys, there's a lot, there's a ton of technology and innovation that has to go into actually engineering this. How do you guys stay current and make sure that you're, you are using kind of the thinnest, lightest, uh, cheapest, strongest materials and, and still kind of making sure that, 
you can stay within your company vision and actually execute on this stuff because that's got to be extremely challenging. Yeah, we, we're a very pragmatic company, as in we don't have dogma around a certain technology. So we, as I mentioned before, really want to solve our customers' problems with, with whatever technology that we can get our hands on or are developing internally. Uh, we have, we're lucky to have an amazing group of engineers and operators inside the company, and we're staying current on the latest trends, whether it's in the hardware side, manufacturing the vehicles, uh, or on the software side to build uh, autonomy and, and automation onto the platforms. And um, all of the technology serves the, cu the customer. So whatever technology makes sense uh, to make sure that we serve the customer best, that's the technology that we're adopting. Um, and yes, the, the, you know, the, the industry as a whole is, is it's really at, at its infancy in a sense, uh, because a lot of these technologies, especially for larger uh, vehicles are just being developed, whether it's on the propulsion side for battery technology or uh, motors, electric motors, uh, or on, on developing airframes from carbon fiber um, and other composite materials and doing that at, at mass. Because again, as I said, if we're thinking about a future where you have millions of uh, these vehicles flying, you have to also think about technology that allow us to manufacture a million uh, air vehicles, and and that's not necessarily the case uh, in in the air air vehicle industry or in the uh, aerospace industry. So I think there's going to be a lot of technology development required in being able to do mass manufacturing of these vehicles. Sure. And then you touched on something on the software side. How do you guys handle security and privacy? Because you're going through a bunch of geographic regions. It depends on whether it's satellite or radio or SIM or, or a bunch of different stuff. Walk us through how you guys handle some of that on the software side. Yeah, I mean, by default, we don't have a camera on the vehicle monitoring okay. or taking pictures. So, so it's not like a camera drone, like a DJI that you'd buy um, for, for using for um, imaging purposes. These are designed to deliver cargo from one point to the other. Um, and then we have some sensors on board for navigation. Um, and as I said, uh, communication with the vehicle, but they're not, um, uh, they shouldn't create any privacy issues. Um, I think the, the more interesting problem for us is how to make sure that they're secure and no one else can, you know, uh, take over. So there's cyber security issues that we, we uh, are more concerned with, less privacy as in, we're not you know, taking pictures of people's uh, properties as we're flying over them. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I think, I guess you're right. It's, it's more of, yeah, like getting a third party to take over control than, yeah, I just, that's what I always found interesting with like some of the drone stuff. People get so freaked out about drones, but it's like, well, a lot like in your case, you're not even taking photos. So it doesn't even really matter. And you're doing something that's trying to help somebody or, or get something to somebody. So that makes, makes a lot of sense. I'm curious, do you have any other predictions for the future of the space? Because I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, what I've been reading online, at least in the battery space, is it seems like there's going to be potentially a bunch of breakthroughs where we're going to have, you know, lighter, fast or lighter batteries that we could potentially go longer distances. Is that true? Or, or what are some other things that you see that are going to maybe really help you you guys and other people leveraging hardware, whether it's for flying or other things, maybe in the battery or other technology space. 
Yeah, I think the the battery technology uh, we're obviously monitoring the trends that we see in the um, uh, in the automotive industry and see seeing how far they come. Unfortunately, batteries are still not at the right energy density to make sense for okay. our size of vehicles, especially for trying to go over longer distances. I mean, as I said, we, we have vehicles that are all electric using current latest and greatest battery technology, but you at most can cover a 50 mile distance with them, okay. which is quite quite a far distance in, sure. in, you know, in most use cases. But um, it's still not to a point where you could go hundreds of miles uh, on, on one charge or with one battery pack. Um, the magic number for us in, in general is going to be about getting to battery energy density of about 400 watt hours per kilogram. And while I think that's been proven at, at a lab scale, not uh, at a mass scale, and with all the other battery technologies that are coming into play, like um, solid state batteries and so on and so forth, we're definitely monitoring them, but we're not the earliest adopters of that technology uh, right now. We're, we're just uh, using what's the latest and greatest automotive uh, battery technology. But yeah, if that breakthrough happens, that's going to enable uh, electric VTOL or eVTOL as, as it's known in our industry uh, for longer distances. And that's an exciting future. I think it's still four to five years away. Um, okay from where we're at today uh, to be able to be used at mass and especially for electric vehicles. Uh, but it's not a um, impossible thing. It's just a matter of when we get there. Sure. Can you use solar at all or is it, it just doesn't make sense for how, how this, how the, it's engineered? You could. Uh, so, the, you know, when, when you're trying to use solar, you have to have a large surface area so that you can have a lot of solar panels capturing right. the energy and then converting it to, to uh, the electric energy that you need for your motors. So if we wanted to build a solar aircraft, it would have to have really, really long wingspans or really large surface areas. We currently don't have that and, and it doesn't make sense for us. Uh, okay. But yeah, solar is a possibility and, and there are some vehicles that are solar powered, but they're, they're normally flying at higher altitudes and they don't do a lot of takeoff and landings. They basically are really large fixed wing platforms with a wingspan of like a hundred feet so that they can cover the, the oh, wow. solar panels on top of them. Well, and then it doesn't really, that kind of potentially limits some of your uh, corporate or enterprise type clients, right? They obviously need a lot bigger space and they may or may not have that, right? Absolutely, yes. I mean, again, one of our key um, value propositions to customers is that this is a limited infrastructure type of technology. You don't need to build a runway. You don't need to give us like a hundred foot by hundred foot area to, to sure. operate, right? Uh, yeah. Because we want to be able to operate in confined areas because that's where most businesses have the availability. Um, and so the the more we can uh, limit the size of the vehicles to be able to operate in these uh, areas and still have the functionality that we need from them. That's what we're designing the op uh, optimizing the design for, not necessarily for how we you know maximize solar or other uh, technologies that might require larger wingspans and different infrastructure for takeoff and landing. Sure. So can you give people a rough size? I know it's kind of hard to do um, just through audio, but like, and I can see photos and people can go to your website and look at photos, but what's roughly the size that people need or just how big roughly is the aircraft? 
Yeah, as I said, uh, the 10 series aircraft, uh, uh, which is a 10 pound payload capacity aircraft has a nine foot wingspan. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, the, the amount of um, space you would need at a minimum to be able to land. But normally we recommend uh, about a 15 by 15 or 20 by 20 foot space uh, okay. on the ground for takeoff and landing purposes. And our larger vehicles, um, the 20 series uh, has about a 15 foot wingspan and it kind of scales up from there. One of our key uh, design philosophies is to try to scale the same design um, and starting with the smallest uh, form factor, which was a 10 and going up from there. And, and that's that's been proven very helpful. So in a sense that we don't need to go and reconfigure uh, and redesign the aircraft every time we're building a next generation or uh, an aircraft with better payload and range capabilities. We can take the same design and incrementally increase payload and range and take the learnings from the subscale models or the smaller platforms to larger platforms. And most importantly, uh, really test and develop all of our autonomy and software on a smaller platform and then scale it to the larger platforms, uh, which allows us to be much more um, nimble and, and develop faster, especially on autonomy and software features. No, very cool. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, the company, and any other things you want to mention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, our website is volancy.com. Um, and uh, uh, please check it out. If you have any questions, uh, we, we have a contact form there. And um, if you're interested in, in working on this technology or working with us, uh, we're always hiring and we have a ton of open positions right now on our careers page, both in engineering, operations, business, uh, um, across the board. So uh, we'd love to have any of your listeners um, you know, reach out to us and say, we're interested in working with you guys and having a discussion with them. Very cool. And just to spell the domain, it's V-O-L-A-N-S-I.com. That's correct. Yeah. Perfect. By the way, maybe, oh, maybe just one thing that your sure. listeners might be interested in because often people ask me is, where does the name come from? Um, Volancy is basically an amalgamation of uh, two Latin words, volance and altilium. Okay. So it means basically flying and electric energy or battery. So the idea is basically we're saying we're building a flying battery. Uh, and, you know, so that's, <laughs> that's how the, the name uh, started or the name comes from. Very cool. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show. I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Yeah, thanks for having me and uh, really enjoyed speaking with you today. Me as well. Have a good rest of your day. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Bye. you too. Bye. Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com.